back to the Entertainment Geekly podcast from Entertainment Weekly at EW.com. I'm Darren Franich, calling in from the 22nd Dimension, slash across the desk from me. It's EW's Jeff Jensen. Jeff, how are you doing? Even though we are now in the same room together, I'm still in another dimension. I'm not convinced. You may be a hologram from the future. I'm, I'm, not, pro- I'm not totally sure. I am I'm projecting an astral projection of myself <laughs> into your office. Oh, we'll talk about that once, once uh, uh, Doctor Strange comes out. Uh, Jeff, last week we talked a lot about the X-Files. Mm-hmm. Some, some version of us is probably still talking about the X-Files in some parallel universe. Yep. Uh, at the end, we asked some people to throw out some of their favorite X-Files episodes. Uh, Sandy Clay Bauer mentioned Jose Chung's From Outer Space, a very popular favorite. Elisa Johnson wrote in to throw out quite a few, actually. <laughs> Squeeze, Ice, Darkness Falls, The Host, Humbug, Too Shy, Jose Chung's again, Home, Leonard Betts, Postmodern Prometheus, and Triangle. I'm, I'm glad to see so much, so much love for those two, actually. So something interesting about those, uh, an observation about uh, those all great episodes, by the way. Um, a mix of Monster of the Week episodes, and it seems to be the pretty trendy, popular, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but view in retrospect of X-Files fans that the Monster of the Week episodes were the best. The other thing I really love about that list is that it's also the episodes that the show allowed itself to have a lot of fun uh, with its own storytelling, very inventive. And that's one of the things I really loved and appreciated about the X-Files that it would allow itself to play with itself, but also to really play with the storytelling in really, you know, exciting, innovative, you know, offbeat ways. You'll enjoy this too because uh, Elisa Johnson's uh, last episode that, that she mentioned is Hollywood AD. Yeah. Do you remember that episode? Uh, with they, David Duchovny writing and directing, I believe, right? That's right. That was, like I think, his second effort after the very polarizing The Unnatural um, uh, uh, where do you stand? Where you stand on the unnatural? I remember liking it, but I understand now that people have very queasy feelings due, due to its sort of like racial politics. Yes, uh, which there are less queasy feelings to be attached to Hollywood AD. Yes. Now, now, in my memory, you can correct me. Hollywood AD is both about Mulder and Scully investigating a monster of the week, but it is also about a movie being made about them, which winds up starring Gary Shandling and uh, Taylor Leone as well. My, my I believe that's here? exactly correct. Now, the one thing I want to know about that is, because this is very important uh, for people who might be watching the, the next episode of The X-Files, uh, Mulder and Scully versus the Were-Monster, um, in that episode, Hollywood AD, do they establish that the X-Files theme song exists in the Mulder and Scully X-Files world? I mean, is it part of the Hollywood AD Oh, movie? that's really interesting. Because, oh, my gosh. I mean, there's this beautiful moment. Um, I think we'll be posting this podcast on Monday. So you might be listening to this and having not yet seen Mulder and Scully versus the Monster. But spoiler alert, there's a moment where you find out that Mulder's ringtone is the X-Files <laughs> theme song. So I was I'm wondering, like, I was trying to remember, like, if the X-Files series established that idea, was most likely ha- would have to be the Hollywood AD episode. If I had time, and I, I sort of do, but I also don't have the inclination, I would try to, my, my hot X-Files fan theory would be that over the course of the show, we have actually seen at least seven different alternate universes of the <laughs> X-Files. This is my sort of like, you know, if I could create the, the Grant Morrison scape. Right, right, right. And one of those... 
One of those worlds is where Mulder and Scully's adventures became a series of popular films. And, <laughs> and you know, then you would retroactively say any episode that is bad was just, was, was one of those films oh, yeah. of, 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 of their adventures. You know, you, you, I have a very active imagination. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> and, 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 and you've kind of gone to versions of this theory before with other shows, like your girl's theory, right? Yes, well, yes. Well, well my, my, my girl's theory was, was more of a, you know, I, a proposal. I, I, am, I am someone who has watched girls from the beginning. You can find online places where I have argued viciously in favor of it. Uh, I, I am now going to finish watching it, although my enjoyment of it has shifted. But I've always said that my fix for it would be that at the end of season five, uh, Lena Dunham's character, Hannah, essentially gets the opportunity to make an HBO TV show about her life, yes. where, wherein she plays a character named Lena Dunham. This has always been my my ultimate. I'm, I imagine that they aren't going to do that. <laughs> if I had to guess, yeah. that may be yet another one of my suggestions that they turn down. But I love that. I, I actually love that. You know, real quick before, I, I definitely want to hear more of these emails. Speaking of X-Files theories, it really kind of um, confronted a lot in reading... Uh, a lot of X-Files stuff these days online, how much of my imagination and theory imagination back in the day was just so focused for better and maybe worse on the mythology and the conspiracy stuff. Because I'm now learning, I mean, stuff that didn't, I never really concerned myself with was the, the shipper angle of the show um, and, and other things too. So I've been greatly entertained by reading these long-standing, long-held fan theories that I really kind of didn't know about. For example, the theory that um, that Scully is immortal. I had never heard that theory I before. Never heard How that interesting theory. is that? This this initially hails from Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, right? That's right. Um, and then, can you please silence yourself? <laughs> I, I apologize, <laughs> Jeff. I'm a busy man with lots of things to do. Oh. Literally, that was an alarm reminding me that we have a podcast oh, today. Okay. That's that's it. how <laughs> that's how how backwards I am. So yes, in that episode, there is a moment where Clyde Bruckman, who of course is someone who can, among his many psychic abilities, knows when people are going to die. Yeah. And Scully asks, "When do I die?" And Clyde says, "You don't." Which, uh, it's funny, actually, uh, this interview will have posted uh, today, Monday, but uh, I was lucky enough to speak to Darren Morgan, who wrote that episode and wrote and directed tonight's X-Files episode, and he he seemed to confirm to me that that was meant as a joke. Yes. Nevertheless, like so many things in genre television, what was initially meant as a joke really has spiraled into an, an incredible sort of whole, 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 whole sequence of theories. To, cl- to clarify and elaborate on that a little bit, yes. So you're referring to two things at once, I think, which is one is, yes, there was this joke in his episode, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, that suggested that Mulder was, I mean, uh, Scully mm-hmm. was immortal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and fans latched on to it. And then it, and then kind of built this theory by glomming onto other kind of pieces of information. In yeah, because there's there's one episode where they keep on living the same day over, right? Is that is that one, one, one part of it? What were the other parts of, of the theory? Do you do you remember? Uh, there was a couple other episodes. I'm forgetting what the other one was. There was there was just enough to make it quite plausible. Actually, right, right, yeah, there was just, just scant <laughs> enough, right? But um, the other part of that, what he must be referring to, is that. Again, another kind of spoiler for uh, Mulder and Scully versus the Were Monster. There is a very explicit on the nose yes. joke that is yes. made in his this episode that you're, that will air tonight. That basically, you know, in which Scully 
is it's an implied wink to the audience yes. about her immortality. Exactly right. Yeah, all, all those fan theories I find interesting only because I mean I don't know about you, Jeff. When I was watching the first run of the X Files, I did, we didn't have internet, much less did I have any way of conferring with any. I, I think yes. I had maybe one or two friends in grade school who watched the X Files, and fair to say we were not in a place where we were constructing like remotely elaborate fan theories about the show. So that's been kind of fun seeing them just they c- come back into bloom all these years right. later. You know the X Files. So it was my first exposure to online fan theory kind of like exchange and debate. What was the internet like back then, Jeff? Back in the day, Dan. <laughs> Darren. Dan, Darren, I confuse you. <laughs> we all look the same. We're all very charming. <laughs> um, no, no. Um, but I remember going to the Fox website, which had a message board system, and um, just like – initially just being really intrigued and attracted like wow my people they're here they're talking about the stuff that i talk about and then i remember kind of like um you know someone posted a theory about black oil um and about Mulder and scully and i responded with you know what i think blah 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 and then like just the hostile reactions to what i had to say i was like oh like this is this is not a safe space. <laughs> Welcome to the comment boards, bitch. <laughs> exactly. That was kind of what it was. Just yeah. Rough estimate. How long was that? Was that initial post that you that you put up there? Um, so I was working at a, at the time for a magazine called Advertising Age, um, my first job out of college, and it was the only place that I had internet connection. <laughs> so I would uh, basically uh, play hooky from work while at work for hours on end on slow days basically going to the X-Files message board and uh, oh, Incredible! Yes. Oh my god, that's great. And now the whole internet is an X-Files message board. I know, right? Um, but one other thing is, is that the other theory that like, and I think this is actually maybe a recent theory. Ooh! A, a, a recent theory, but it's not new. Um, and, I, and because I wish I had been more on top of this theory, because I would have asked it to like Chris Carter and, and David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson when I wrote my X-Files stuff last year and when I interviewed them. But this theory, which I kind of love, is, is that um, Mulder and Scully were having sex from the very beginning. This theory was kind of posted at an, I forget what outlet, forgive me if you're listening to this and you know what it is and I'm not citing my sources. But yes, there's this, this, this recent theory that has gained a lot of traction that basically they were having sex the whole time. The reason why this theory was constructed is to gain some insight as to why Scully ever kind of put up with Mulder all those years. <laughs> and basically it was because the sex was great and oh. they were having it from the get-go. I love that idea. I, I love that like in that version of the show, they are basically... Do you remember on The Wire, um, when you first meet the characters, McNulty is carrying on a, a very like love-hate, with an emphasis on hate affair with uh, with one of the lawyers who yes. they often work with. Yes. I'm, I'm sort of picturing it like, so, like somewhat like that, where Mulder sort of stumbles in at night, drunk and raving about, like, you know, crop circles and, and something like that. And Scully's just like, why do I, do, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep doing <laughs> right, this? Right. Do you remember, the, it's funny, this is, this, this is a minor tangent. This reminds me of, um, on Battlestar Galactica, you ultimately got to the point where the character of Commander Adama was sleeping with President Roslin. And I remember Ronald D. Moore in one of his podcasts said that the actors thought they'd been sleeping together the whole time. Really? And 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 if if you watch the show Nothing necessarily implies any other way. You know, there's 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 no moment of them sort of saying, ah, we've we, we, we've waited for this for so long, which I think is also true 
of the X-Files because I'm not even sure. Did we know that they'd slept together before Scully was pregnant? This is, this is going deep into a part of the show that I barely understand e- even now. But. Again, yeah, you know, again, like I said, I, uh, while I was never necessarily, while I was never opposed to the idea of them getting together, especially in the latter half of the show. Why do you hate love so much, I, Jeff? I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it just it must be something in my past. But in the early years of the show... One, it was just a framework that I never concerned myself with. Mm-hmm. Um, but two is once I started hearing that there was this, you know, element of, of fandom that was fixated on the idea of them getting together, I just was, I, I just kind of like, really? I mean, does it have to be that way? I mean, isn't that every show we've ever seen with an attractive male, female lead? Of course, they got to get together. And, you know, if they do, like at that time, this is the early 90s, and there was the, the conversation about, Will they, won't they um, kind of like dynamics on TV show at that, at that time, TV shows at that time, kind of largely framed by like Moonlighting mm-hmm. or Cheers, where the, the conventional wisdom was if people got together, the show goes downhill. <laughs> and so I kind of was applying it from that perspective, which is can't we just appreciate the relationship as it is? Um, and uh, But as we get into later years of the X-Files, and again, I can't really – remember a lot of later year X-Files. That's weird, huh? But I think I kind of was starting to check out. Um, I think even then, as they had sort of established that there was some kind of intimate rapport going on, they played it real light. Yes. Out of fear of, out of maybe realizing that there was still a very kind of like polarized opinion within their audience about whether or not this should happen. It is interesting too, because in the one time I believe we've ever fully seen them together together was the second X-Files movie, I Want to Believe, which has such a toxic reputation that, and I personally remember loathing it, that I almost wonder it may be worth refurbishment as far as going back and looking at it and trying to spot what did work. But I vividly recall that was the one time where there was a scene of them in bed together. And you you really had the feeling of like, maybe they're together, but maybe they're just the worst couple ever. Like they're just, they're very kind of, you know, given how the sparks could fly between them with banter. They're now just sort of like, well, here we are. Like two two people who nobody else wants to be with. And now now we're sort of forced to be together. Well, I think the idea that they were playing with and their vestiges of it we, we still see here in the show is... Obviously, they know each other better than anyone else in the world. They, they take comfort in each other. They, they care deeply for each other. But I think especially on Scully's end, there is something that the way that Mulder is living her, his life that she just ultimately, like, I can't really be part of. And so, hence, the, the only occasional hookup. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, our, our last email from the email bag comes from Candace Heath, who says, quote, There are two more serious Scully-centric episodes that spring to mind as extremely exceptional. Never Again, which includes a hallucinogenic tattoo voiced by Jodie Foster. Is that true? That's, yes. Uh, is, is thought-provoking and shows the depth of, of, of Scully's character. Also, All Things, written and directed by Anderson, is, is a standout episode. It calls into question Scully's dedication to the X-Files. Is she happy with the choices she's made and where it's gotten her? Would she do it all over again? I, I'm glad that she mentioned All Things, because although I, I could not tell you 
the plot of the episode per se. There are moments from that episode that I do vividly recall, mainly because it was a real change of pace for the show. Like that was the one episode I believe written and directed by Anderson. Um, And it feels deeply personal in a lot of ways. I mean, in that episode, Scully meets a former lover of hers. And I think it emerges that he was married at the time that they were together. And it's really sort of dreamlike and and very sad in a lot of ways. But ultimately, I do think it shows their relationship from her side in a way that is maybe speaks to kind of what you're saying, which is, you know, on one hand, here is someone who I am so much more intensely close to than I could ever be with anyone else. And on the other hand, has this person maybe ruined my life just by virtue of (laughs) taking me so completely down one path. Um, So uh, Jeff, uh, that was X-Files. I'm sure we'll talk about that more. I hope everyone enjoys the episode airing tonight because I think it's fair to say we both really enjoyed it. Jeff, um, let's talk about superheroes. Superheroes. We haven't done that in a little while. Um, The uh, new series, Legends of Tomorrow, which is the third in the Berlantiverse to air on the CW, and the fourth, counting Supergirl, which is now completely in the Berlantiverse, has just began. What is the Berlantiverse, someone might be asking. Let's start even before that, Jeff. Superhero TV shows. Where do we begin? Well, with that? let's clarify some terms. Okay. Berlantiverse. Yes. Greg Berlanti, super producer Greg Berlanti, who's uh, written and produced a lot of great shows. Before he became like Mr. Superhero, um, maybe famous for Everwood and Brothers and Sisters? Uh, I believe so. Did, did he do Jack and Bobby? He did. Oh, oh, I love Jack and Bobby. I love Jack and Bobby. I do too. <laughs> Jack yeah. and Bobby. Uh, this is a, a, a TV series that I believe aired on the WB when it was still the WB. And uh, the conceit of the show was that you were watching uh, the young childhood of a boy who will grow up to be president intercut. With, so essentially that was a more or less straightforward but really interestingly done teen show. And then you were seeing like essentially confessionals from a documentary about that president from the far future. I can't believe that show was so wonderful. And so I, it's so bizarre to me that it actually got really made. smart, really <laughs> clever, high concept family comedy at a time. And yeah, I think, I think it was uh, Greg's second show. You know, he had had a hit with Everwood and then he kind of leveraged it to kind of create this other show. Um, but then like, you know, as his career progressed, he kind of moves out of, this sort of like, you know, contemporary, you know, like real world relationship dramas. And he starts branching into sci-fi and fantasy. Um, I think he was one of the credited screenwriters on the Green Lantern movie. He sure was. Many, many talented people have credits on the Green Lantern movie. And I want to say, was it either before Arrow or after Arrow? He did a show that I thought was actually really interesting and really good in the in its early episodes. Can I guess? Yes, Eli Stone. Well, no, yeah. Well, but that was a clever high concept show too. But I mean, was it No Ordinary Family? The kind of his Fantastic Four kind of like I uh, forgot about that. He, he produced show? No Ordinary Family. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I which starred that. Michael Chiklis and uh, Dexter's dead wife, if I recall correctly. <laughs> right? dead wife. I'm that's sure right. she, she she has a real name that I'm just forgetting right now. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So that's that's the transformative moment for right. him. Then it seems yeah, like. and and so. So he's become kind of like our premier television storyteller and articulator of these great superhero uh, brands. Um, and uh, and it, it, it's fascinating that, 
yeah, so, so it's the dominant mode of superhero TV today. And we want to talk about that. We want to talk about uh, Legends of Tomorrow, which I alternately find myself calling League of Tomorrow for some reason. It is very confusing. <laughs> well, well, because there's there, there's so many leagues in DC, in the DC universe, and there's also League of Legends, which is the video game that I don't understand. So there's a lot of things. But I, so I... I came to Legends of Tomorrow as a total newbie, and I want to talk about that as a newbie to the Berlanti verse. Yes, is that am I pronouncing that That's correctly? Sure. Sounds good. Um, but I want to talk, Jeff. You sort of put forward the idea of Greg Berlanti is the dominant mode of superhero storytelling on television now. Right. Let's start from the beginning. Right. And in in, in my understanding, the beginning is. You have the adventures of Superman in the 1950s with George Reeves as Superman. Is yeah. That, is that correct? Let, let, let's, let's, let, let's kind of like walk up to the Berlanti moment uh, by kind of like surveying the history of superhero television. It's so appropriate, too, because Legends of Tomorrow is all about time travel. There we Boom! Go. Nice. Very nice title. <laughs> if we can have like a prologue, the prologue to that history is an acknowledgement that in the 30s and 40s we have the golden age of comics where we have superhero comics blowing up on the scene and giving us these great characters that we now know. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, uh, The Flash, Spirit, Green Lantern. There we go. Yes. <laughs> Johnny Quick. <laughs> all, all those characters. Um, um, those properties, the comic books, very popular. Those, those characters capture our imagination. Very naturally, they start gravitating into other media. So we have like, cliffhanger serials there was a batman and robin cliffhanger serial there was superman cliffhanger serials and there were captain america cliffhanger serials we also see radio plays right and we also have the beautiful max fleischer cartoons uh based on superman so so right away we're we're, we're seeing this content gravitating into um uh other media being somewhat faithful mostly faithful to the comic books sometimes adding on to like the mythology and understanding of comics and cross-pollinating with the comics, like the Max Fleischer cartoons, for example, introduced the idea that Superman can fly. Like in the comics before then, they just he just leaps. <laughs> Tall buildings, that kind of thing. Um, 1952, right? We get television. Television is now transforming uh, the country, transforming entertainment, and the adventures of Superman with, uh, with George Reeves is a huge hit from the get-go, 1952 to 1958. Um, and it's worth, here's what I want to like note about this television show, which I thought was interesting, um, which is that first couple seasons, black and white, kind of gritty, kind of film noir, noir, you know, light, but still serious, like a, like a nice balance of that, right? But in like the second or third season, they switch to color and they are concerned about um, uh, growing the audience and keeping young kids because parents were having maybe a little bit of discomfort with some of the um, the darker undertones of the first two seasons. So they switched to color, and they we start getting a lighter Superman. And I just kind of, they think a lighter tone. And I just kind of want to acknowledge that right away, that from the beginning of superhero TV and the beginning of superhero pop, we see a kind of tension that would frame a lot of stuff to come, which is like, what is the right tone for this material in order to either get the biggest possible audience or to keep an audience. I think that would be, it's an interesting struggle and I think it kind of relates to, again, kind of the issues that we see Berlanti dealing with. Um, I want to take a little tangent here and note that one year after The Adventures of Superman debuts, 
um, this sort of like black and white, kind of somewhat serious, grittier film noir take on Superman. Mad Magazine publishes what was going to be like this, this brilliant satire of Superman and one of the most influential comics ever told in that many, it would have a huge impact on future storytellers and kind of like change the way we tell comic book stories. This was um, Super Duper Man, this really kind of outrageous satire and blowing up of Superman that really kind of takes the piss out of Superman as a sort of like morally righteous avatar, right? Um, this is a Superman, this is a Clark Kent who's just basically the worst caricature of like a sexually repressed geek, you know? <laughs> and he's using his x-ray vision to like, you know, like look at, you know, like, you know, Lois Lane in her, in her underwear and all this kind of stuff. Um, very irreverent, very subversive. Um, and um, it really kind of like is an attempt to sort of like ask the question, what would happen if we really take superheroes seriously, but to extreme comic effect, okay? Mm -hmm. Bookmark Super Duper Man in your imagination for right now. Um, you know, moving into the 60s, we get the, the, the Silver Age of comics, this massive reinvention, this creative revolution of comics that gave us DC rebooting its Golden Age brands with like the modern takes on the Flash, the modern takes on the Green Lantern, Modern, modern takes on Hawkman, um, but Batman and Superman remaining kind of very vital concerns. But then you have the Marvel Comics stuff, right? Which is, um, which is um, a whole, a slightly more nuanced, psychologically sophisticated approach to, uh, to, to superheroes. They're, they're younger, they have angst, or they're dysfunctional families like the Fantastic Four. Superheroes with problems, to That's be as similar as possible. That's yeah. right, like... Silver Surfer is this soulful, existentially kind of like racked, like like superhero. Um, the Hulk, you know, it has his own very serious mental problems. Um, <laughs> the Hulk has he does he has a few mental problems, which which later years will explore in great depth. <laughs> That's right, right. Um, so you have these kind of like two different companies having this great renaissance of, and, and and comics with their very different approaches to to superheroes. So end prologue of, <laughs> in terms of our survey here. So we're going to really kind of begin the history of superhero TV with, of course, the Batman television series um, from 66 uh, to, to 68, kind of landmark kind of television show known for its pop art and camp and campy kind of style um, that sort of, you know, is uh, borrowing in a very cliche, sometimes cliche, sometimes inspired way, the aesthetics of comic book storytelling with a very kind of like cheeky, irreverent sense of humor. What I find really interesting about the backstory of the development of the show was that that wasn't the original perspective on the material, that when they started developing in the very earliest stages of a Batman show, um, they wanted something a little more serious, something more in the vein of uh, a man from uncle, um, where it's, there is, there is definitely a light comedic tone, but ultimately kind of like serious action adventure storylines. Um, but the, the property went through various stages of development, ultimately landed with its producer. And as the producer started executing and developing this sort of like perspective, he, he went to the comics and he started reading the comics. And I don't really know the entire story, but he had a very strong reaction to what he was reading. And his attitude was, no, we can't take this seriously. The best possible way to attract a mass audience with this material is to be goofy, is to be pop art, 
to be irreverent. Maybe he thought it captured the spirit of the times, but I think it's this sort of underlying tone of like, we, we can't really take this stuff seriously. I mean, it's superheroes, right? It's guys dressed up in costumes. Well, and, and, and like, and sort of, so chicken or the egg question here, uh, you know, one of the things that I love about Grant Morrison's book, Super Gods, is he really drills down into the different kind of micro generations of the comic book treatment of these characters. And I, I'm wondering, like, when Batman, the TV show started, were we kind of at the point in comic books where Batman and Superman, like the sort of like, like Mort Weisinger era where, where Batman, you know, there was like the Batman family and he was going to yes. space and stuff like that. Like, because, because like, you know, obviously the original Batman stories in, in my recall were quite dark and quite gritty and he kills people and stuff like that. Right. I, I, I wonder like, were the comics of that era, were they already lighter or, or, or did they kind of get lighter in response to the, to, uh, to the TV? So show? I can't speak authoritatively to that, but yes. I mean, I want to say that like during the silver age of like Batman and Superman, um, in the sixties, there wasn't a real eclectic range of kinds of stories that you can find, but yeah, there Robin was, dies at dawn is always my favorite. <laughs> but yeah, you have like, you have the Superman family of titles, you have the Batman family of titles and, um, certainly going from the fifties and the sixties, you have some like really crazy kooky Batman and Superman stories happening. And I, I'd, I'd love to know, and maybe there are better experts on this out there than us, certainly me, but like what? Um, William Dozier, I believe, is the name of the Batman uh, producer. What comics of Batman did he read, or what comics in general was he reading that said, this is the way we got to do this material? But it's interesting because that show was a huge cultural phenomenon for a very brief period of time, and it made a huge impression on the pop culture about like how we view superheroes as... Yeah, like there must be like geeks who take it seriously, but largely it's this kind of like campy thing that you can't take seriously. Yes. The Batman TV show, is it fair to say, maybe the most single controversial element of Batman mythology insofar as most of the time that I was a kid, everything about Batman was, from my perception, constructed to be anti the Batman TV show. That's correct. So you're talking about a period of comics in the 80s, pretty mm -hmm. much, 80s and 90s, when we, when things got grim and gritty. But it's interesting because when I, I discovered the Batman uh, TV show in the 70s in syndication as a kid, and I remember really being struck by that tone, but thinking it kind of odd, that finding the irreverence oddly unnerving and disturbing, maybe because I held these characters in such like sacred regard, um, uh, so to see them, see Batman and Robin being treated so irreverently with a s slightly, it felt actually edgy to me. Mm -hmm. and, Interesting. And, you know, they did this movie, right? In between <laughs> the first and second seasons of Batman, they did a Batman movie, which is now like, like mistakenly thought of as like the pilot for the show. Um, which was really not the case. It was actually done in between. It brought together all the villains. But it has a really dark ending. I don't know if you remember it. No, I've, 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 I've never seen it before. I mean, I want to say that, like, it ends with something like um, the bad guys have developed this, 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 this gun that evaporates all the world leaders into, like, piles of ash. Right? <laughs> and so, like, Batman and Robin have to, like, find a way to basically restore these piles of ash 
into the world leaders or diplomats, make it sort of representatives from the UN that they once were. And they finally do that. But when they kind of like re- re- reconstruct uh, uh, these piles of ash into the, the, the various representatives from around the world, they're all speaking other people's languages. So they're, they've been kind of mixed up. Right, it's like the Tower of Babel or like, something. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> there was something really kind of like subversive and like you know, there's seemed like an underlying political message to all of that. That that was like really smart. So yes, it was campy, but I remember as a kid being really kind of sensing that there was something adult within that irreverence and campiness that I didn't really understand yet. Yeah, this was, I mean, it feels as if the Batman TV show in general is ripe for some kind of Douglas Sirkian, like, like, like the, the, like the idea that maybe there was a lot of lurking darkness, you know, kind of like right in front of your face, but it was all just so bright and poppy that like, you know, all people saw was the goofiness. Now, let me ask you this. Are are, are you now just pitching to me the Todd Haynes Far From Heaven reboot of the Batman TV series? Generally speaking, I only pitch Todd Haynes versions of of, uh, of things from now on. If I had ten Todd Haynes, that wouldn't be enough. But um, what what I want to ask specifically to get us back on the train of superhero TV history is: so Batman 1960s TV show happens. Yeah. Uh, is the history of, of superhero television from there a reaction against that show, or is it a kind of slow? Does it does it get absorbed into the firmament of superhero television history? Well, um, moving on from there, I, let, let me see if I can answer your question by kind of like just kind of uh, moving on from there. But, you know, like like we have this TV show um, and then we, uh, you know, moving into the 70s, we have a lot of wonderful sort of like animated stuff. Right. Um, you have. Uh, I'm intrigued by your definition of wonderful, but let's let's well, hear. Oh, no, OK. Well, what I mean, <laughs> so you have like the, 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 the Spider-Man cartoon, which was kind of cheesy. Great song. Right. Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Um, but you also had the Fantastic Four like cartoon at the same time from the 1967 and 1970. Like Marvel licensed its characters for a series of like Saturday morning animation. What I really kind of want to uh, just just kind of like shout out there. What my favorite in that bunch was the Fantastic Four. And the reason why it was my favorite is that they were like seriously adapting stories from the comics. And um, my, my first exposure ever to superhero TV was when I was a little kid and I had a TV. Uh, I was borrowing my parents' black and white TV and I was uh, brought it out of their room into my room. And I turned to this channel that I knew that had cartoons, but it was all staticky. So I was cranking that button that is on the, the dial that's on these old black and white TVs to sort of like, you know, tune in, get through the static. And as I'm tuning in through the static, all of a sudden this, um, this image emerges through the static of this Fantastic Four cartoon. And it's an adaptation of the first Galactus story with Silver Surfer. Now, I had no idea that this cartoon ever existed, but it was like because um, I was like five, six, seven, but I was familiar with the Fantastic Four and I was familiar with that story. So all of a sudden seeing this cartoon, it was like I was dialing in to this, like to this frequency that was just made just for me. Like I was like, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, like I've been waiting to see something like this all my life. Like, like, like I'm six years old, so all my life. But like <laughs> my favorite comic book stories now, like 
being turned into media. So well, um, no, and and now now just sort of like on that note, what I find interesting about that is, from my own perception, when when we're talking about Adventures of Superman and the Batman TV show, and we're coming right up on Wonder Woman in a second, for me it's interesting because my perception is. As much as those were adaptations of the source material, on a very deep level, you could feel the difference. I mean, with Adventures, yes. of, with, with Adventures of Superman, I mean, let's not even talk about special effects. Like, you know, there just there wasn't the same level of Superman going to space, fighting Brainiac, and all these other characters. Right. And the the Batman TV show, as you discussed, was was a, was a very different treatment of the material. Just from what little I've seen of the Spider Man cartoon, yes. I think there was also a Captain America cartoon. That's right. uh-huh. Like when Captain America throws his mighty yes. shield, those felt to me like exactly what you're describing. Like they are taking panels practically from the original comic yes. books and creating animation around them, which yes. is very interesting. So in the Spider-Man cartoon, for example, there were like three seasons of that. And in the first season of that Spider-Man cartoon, he was fighting like bad guys from his comics, right? So it definitely feels like the source material. But... I believe that the, the story goes is that the second and third seasons, like the first company that was producing it went bankrupt and they didn't have a lot of money for the second and third seasons. So they found these really kind of cheap ways to work around it. One cheap way to work around, uh, one way to make the Spider-Man cartoon cheaper was to have like fewer fights with bad guys. So it was more like they made generic bad guys, you know, like borrowed from another cartoon that the producer had produced. <laughs> oh, um, no way. Yeah, Ralph Bashy, right? So, um, and then in the third season, there was like more to do with him as a high school student. But yeah, you're getting at that. That's why I'm kind of like, like, like hammering on the Fantastic Four there is because as a, as a geek growing up, what I pine to see if people were going, if Hollywood was going to make superhero media was stories that I recognized, whether it's straight adaptations of the comic books that I read, or at the very least, if it's going to be the original stories, that feels like steeped in like uh, those stories that like felt like comic book stories. Yes. As opposed to kind of like these calculated uh, efforts to appeal to everyone or these dilutions of certain elements of comic book stuff for the sake of uh, like getting an audience. And that's what you start seeing when you get into the 70s, right? And you start seeing shows like uh, Wonder Woman. I, I, it's funny because like Wonder Woman had a huge impact. On, like I remember watching Wonder Woman. I can't really tell you a lot about Wonder Woman. <laughs> but I can tell you a lot about like Spider-Man, the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man TV series. that was very, very short-lived. I remember just my imagination completely captured by that. But, you know, it was funny because it was produced by CBS at a time where they had a lot of superhero pop culture on its airwaves. In the mornings, they had Shazam and Isis, a live-action kind of version of that stuff. But they also had the Hulk. They also resurrected Wonder Woman. And they had Spider-Man. And it was a very expensive show to produce. And uh, and in the second... But they, they were they were starting to kind of like getting, getting a little bit uh, ambivalent or uh, struggling with the idea of being like the superhero network, right? Um, but the other thing they were concerned about was that they were losing the adult audience. So in the second season of Spider-Man, they start downplaying his powers. They play up a romance. So again, you kind of see this sort of like this, this, this attitude at play of if you're going to kind of do a superhero TV show, 
You have to modulate the tone to get the biggest possible audience, right? Adults will be turned out about a Spider-Man show where a man dresses as Spider-Man and web swings. But if that and man... And fighting bad guys right, and having superpowers right, but, and being but, like the overtly... The, 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 but 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 like the theory goes, if Spider-Man takes off his mask for ninety percent of the episode and has various romantic subplots, that will attract the the grown-up audience. And Is be, that sort of part of the? And thinking? have little grittier plots too, mm-hmm. like you know. And so instead of like fighting some kind of like super villain, he's like dealing with real-world problems, or at least more kind of realistic conflicts. Meanwhile, and like for me growing up, struggling with like. Why are these like live action superhero shows not really kind of what I want from superhero TV? Animate the animated world is giving me like one of my favorite things ever, which is Challenge of the Super Friends, right? So Super Friends is a huge, essential, influential piece of like superhero cartoon pop. Um, but the third season of that gives us Challenge of the Super Friends, in which we have they greatly expand the, 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 the group of characters in the Justice League, but they also give you the Legion of Doom and all this sort of like this murderer's row of these great DC Comics villains. And I just loved it because it felt more like the comic books as opposed to kind of like this um, kind of slightly blander, softer kind of like well, treatment of... Now, um, to drill down for a second, Jeff, what interests me when I... When I see a movie or a TV show based on a superhero comic book, that I know. There is some part of me in my brain that is thinking this is like the comics or this is not like the comics. Not necessarily it's good or bad, but just like this is hitting that part of my brain that I remember from reading this comic book story or comics about these characters. What, what is it about these, those cartoons that you think was so much more comic book-like? Like was, it, was it just that they were animated so there was a, there was, it was closer in, in, in the kind of texture of the storytelling to the, to, to, to the comic books or was it a was the sensibilities you think and, and, and no particular order of, of of characteristics the thing that i really appreciated for example about uh challenge of the super friends is that they were moving beyond just like the iconic characters that you know so super friends the first two seasons of super friends is like superman batman wonder woman aquaman and like Zan and no, not Zan and Jaina, but the other two first. Uh, I, I the Wonder the Twins, the, right? No, well, the Wonder Twins replaced the first two. Oh, kids I didn't know about that. I Interesting. But yeah, I mean, it was like they were the big brands that you know, like they were the iconic figures, and frankly, for me, the most boring characters in the DC Comics canon. But then you get into Challenge of the Super Friends, and you're starting adding like the Flash. And you're at Green Lantern and Hawkman, which, by the way, very old characters, too, but seem to be at that point like the secondary, the second tier characters. And I and, and but for me had the more interesting powers, the more interesting mythology, the Green Lantern and the Lantern Corps. Like, I really love that. Listen, you'll, Green Lantern has the most interesting mythology and his powers are awesome. And I, I, I refuse to hear any different when it comes to him. Continue. And then also, like, what, what, the, what the, Challenge of the, Super, uh, Challenge of the Super Friends did was they had a greater racial diversity in there. So not necessarily with the greatest maybe representations, but still points for trying, like, you know, a Native American hero named Apache Chief that could grow into a giant size. There was a character, uh, Black Vulcan, which was their riff on Black Lightning, you know. Um, but then you kind of go over to the villain side, and you have, 
like this sort of like great cast of villains, uh, Black Manta, this Aquaman kind of villain, I believe. And he has a great design, Solomon Grundy. Um, and you know, the, 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 the toy man, like great voice cast for that. They lived inside like a, 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 they lived in the swamp. Their secret headquarters was in the swamp awesome. inside this giant kind of like facility that looked like Darth Vader's helmet. And it kind of rose up and down out of the swamp. It was just kind of cool. So that, and then the plots were, they felt, they felt like plots that you would get out of an, uh, uh, like, uh, loosely adapted from, uh, some like comic book that you read, some kind of justice league thing, not necessarily like one for one adaptations, but they, 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 they felt like, you know, like there would be time travel plots. There'd be one where they kind of like, uh, you know, like take the, 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 the kidnap the, the, the superheroes and they take them to like, uh, some parallel dimension and have a big fight, you know, that kind of thing. Um, they're just like more high concept sci-fi plots, deeper cut superheroes, like they felt more like the superhero stories that I was reading, that I was becoming increasingly attracted to, a little a little edgier, a little more cosmic, a little bit like just, to be honest, like to use a bad word, really kind of like geekier, mm-hmm. you know, um, as opposed to kind of like a more kind of bland, generic Superman saves the day from something, you know, right. like. Well, this is, this is what always interests me, and this plays into where superhero television goes from here, yes. is that if, if you were a man arriving from Mars, let's say, and someone told you, all right, there are two kinds of superhero TV shows. I don't know why, I don't know why that's the first thing you'd say to an alien, but let's, let's, <laughs> right. say, let's say you know, you're trying to bring the alien up to speed, and you say, there are superhero TV shows that are about parallel universes and time travel and, you know, elaborate web of supervillain plots. And there are superhero TV shows that are about, you know, human relationships and will they or won't they. And, you know, where, where there's actually less, there are less complicated storytelling dynamics and it's more at a human level. Which of those two do you think is geared towards children and which of those two do you think is geared towards adults? And the weird thing is that, I mean, I, I, I guess you could answer that a few different ways, but certainly when you get to parallel universes and time travel and all this stuff, you, you, you would think that that would require a more a more grown-up or at least a, a, you know, an understanding of how there are five different versions of characters. And yet somehow, throughout superhero history, those are the stories that seem to be told in animated form or that are told in comic books. And then once they get made into movies and TV shows, there's a sense of like, oh, we need to, okay, we need to kind of make this less complex, which I always find very interesting from a perspective right. of like, what do, what, what are kids able to handle versus what are adults able to handle? Yeah, it is, uh, that, that is, that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. With, with, with animation, I mean, obviously, it's, it's the assumption is that it's being made for a narrow audience. And there is some assumptions about kind of like what you can do in the medium and what, what you know, that could be a little bit more fantastical. Yes. Um, but, but at this point in our survey of the his, a history of superheroes, it seems that when it comes to kind of like translating this stuff into live action material, you, you have to... You, you you have to be very careful in order to get the biggest possible audience. You could you could be kind of high concept, but you can't be too high concept. I mean, you even look at the Superman movies of the late seventies. You know that you know first one is like you know Superman is the only real fantastical element in that movie, and he's trying to stop Lex Luthor from like perpetrating some 
massive land scheme with nuclear weapons. It all goes back to real estate in it those really Superman does. movies. It's it's it, it, it's really interesting. That was something that I, I loved too. That in Superman Returns, which is a movie that is is in is always in various stages of being reappraised and being negatively appraised. But I did like how they just brought the whole idea of real estate as the motivator for Lex Luthor. Yeah. <laughs> so sort of sort of brought in unchanged from the originals. So you move past, like, you know, that moment in the 70s. In the 80s, there's not a lot going on in live action. And then we finally get the Batman movie in, like, you know, 89, which is this, like, real big stab at taking, like, superheroes a little more seriously than we have and really breaking from the perception that's created by superheroes, and specifically Batman, by the, the, the 60s television show. And of course, Tim Burton is drafting off of and being inspired by what's going on in comics right now at that moment in the 80s with this sort of like huge creative renaissance that's that's happening of uh, with led by guys like Frank Miller and Alan Moore and, 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 and other writers that are bringing a, a, a sort of like much more realistic approach to superheroes and super, superhero psychology Remember I told you the story about Super Duper Man, right? So Super Duper Man from the Mad from Mad Magazine in like 1953 is this like funny satire on Superman that kind of asked the question, what if we really kind of took Superman seriously and then pushed it to extreme comic caricature? Alan Moore, we Alan Moore, one of you know the great one of the great like comic book writers of all time, he he was deeply influenced by that super, that Mad Magazine story back in the day. You're kidding me, right? Really? Right. Yeah, Super Duper Man. <laughs> and somehow, in my head, I'm seeing like ten year old Alan Moore. He already has long hair and a beard, but right. he's 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 the one kid who's reading Super Duper Man and saying, "Yes, this this is this is is the future of the graphic novel art form." Right, right. Well, you know, Alan Moore influenced by a lot of things, not just this one story. But when he sat down with Dave Gibbons to create Watchmen, this, you know, great superhero text that really kind of is this exploration of, like, what if we took superheroes seriously? Heard of um, it, yeah. One of, yeah, heard of it. Um, one of their influences was this Super Duper Man story. And their question was, okay, well, Harvey Kurtzman and Wally Wood, the writer and artist of that story back in the day, they took that question and they, and they explored it for comedy what if we take that question and we explore it for, for drama? Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I sit on this because what I want to say here is, is that um, the super duper man approach, which maybe you see echoes of in like the Batman like TV series back in the 60s, like only it, it takes you to a dead end, which is that superheroes are ridiculous and you can't take them seriously. Right. Right. Um, Strangely enough, the Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons approach of taking that question, of taking Super Duper Man and exploring it for drama and a dark, grim, gritty, also kind of leads you to a creative dead end. As we have seen in comics, this sort of like extreme nihilism and this like, you know, just just despair that's just like, blech, you know, mm-hmm. like, and, and so I just, I just want to put that out there because I think that once we finally get to Berlanti, and we will get to Berlanti very quickly here, I think that we see an attempt to get away from both of those modalities, right? So anyway, so you have you know you have you have the Batman movie, and that has a huge uh, you, you have this moment in comics in the eighties. 
giving birth to Batman, which is now going to start infecting other kind of ways of thinking about superheroes and other media. Like, for example, during this time, there was a Superboy TV series. Do you remember this? I barely remember this, and I'm so excited to talk about it based on what you said about it. I, all I remember about it is watching one episode very randomly. It must have been in reruns at that point because it was in the early 90s. Uh, and basically, I didn't know that, that it existed. But you have an interesting, you have a very intriguing percep- perception of the Superboy d- Well, I have a very show. small perception of it because I, I, I can't even tell you who was in it. But I remember watching it. <laughs> but I remember watching it in the last couple of years. So this is interesting. Um, I promise you, I think it's interesting, which is that this show is only on for like four years. And, um, and it too, like a lot of other sort of series be, be, before it, it, um, it, it, it changes tone halfway through. So in the early seasons of, of the show, I believe there was an attempt to sort of like appeal to a, 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 a big audience with sort of a, a lighter tone. Um, but in around 19, like halfway through the run, influenced by the Batman movie, it decides to change tones pretty dramatically, which which with with darker, much more serious plots. Um, they introduce this idea of like Superboy working for some government agency that is investigating like aliens and superpowered aliens that are out out in, in, in the world doing either bad or good. Might sound familiar to uh, to watchers of Supergirl, you know. If you uh, well, anyway, um, but what what I find interesting about it is it, ironic is the reversal that is happening now, right? Which is that um, like in, in in superhero TV shows of the past. The story is to start serious and then lighten up to get a bigger audience. Now we're going to start seeing kind of like shows starting lighter and then like, you know, getting, getting darker so, or, or geekier perhaps to keep um, its audience. So, right. Like, like Superboy, no more plots about you going to college. Now we need to get into you investigating aliens from other planets. And like we're, we are now like we were diving deeper into what we would later call mythology, right. so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, I mean, after, you know, Superboy was a syndicated series, the 90s, can't remember a lot of superhero stuff. I know that there was Lois and Clark. Lois and Clark. Uh, there was also, I mean, uh, uh, the most famous, I think, from the 90s was Batman, the animated series. Yeah. Which is still, I, I think if you talked to a certain swath of people, they would declare that maybe the best... Best is the wrong word. The fullest appreciation of everything Batman can be translated to the screen. I mean, like, you know, I'm someone, like, I love Batman Returns. I love Christopher Nolan's first two Batman movies. Um, you know, there are a couple of interesting Batman TV shows. But I, I, Batman the Animated Series was this incredible attempt to be like, what if we kind of did a 1930s art deco aesthetic, but mixed with the kinds of storytelling that kind of defined Batman in the 50s, which is, you know, this this sort of, we're, we're entering into the Batman story at a moment when he's been operating for a while, and there's all these villains that, you know, he's he's not necessarily meeting him for the first time. You know, the, the, the assumption is this has been going on for a while, but it's also, you know, also it's for kids, but also it's quite dark, and the most famous example of this, of course, is the episode Heart of Ice, which is about Mr. Freeze, which I believe actually 
takes Mr. Freeze character and really adds a lot to him that got reincorporated into comic books. But it is a dark and quite melancholy episode of television. Have you ever seen it before? That's a great series. Yeah. Absolutely. And like one, uh, again, like I, I would, I, uh, a great example for me about why I think we should deal with animation and the conversation about superhero TV stuff, because those, that, that bat, those Batman cartoons, and they would kind of evolve in different kind of permutations throughout the nineties represents some of the most like, you know, uh, attempts to be really faithful to Batman um, and, 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 and do some really great storytelling that appeals across the board without compromising anything, without diluting anything, um, um, not going nearly as far as the nihilism and edginess of like Frank Miller's The Dark Knight, but just, I mean, it might be the best adaptation of Batman stuff ever. Yes, I yes. mean, it just, it's, it's really great. There's another cartoon series from the 90s that I know that you love that I think we I, we should give a shout out now, which is... Uh, X-Men the Animated Series. Right. Um, which is actually really interesting just because, from my perception, so when I was a kid reading comic books, I read a lot of X-Men at the moment when there was a lot of X-Men to read between the two X-Men series and X-Force and uh, you know X-Factor, and I could probably named five more X-Comics if I had a second. But the series... I think introduced the characters to a lot of people my age who weren't necessarily reading comic books. And the series was interesting because it was sort of set in a Jim Lee era of the X-Men and you had Gambit and you had Rogue and her kind of 90s permutation and Jubilee who kind of really became an iconic character, I think largely because of the show. Yeah. But a lot of what they were adapting in my memory were elements of the kind of great Chris Claremont, John Byrne run from yeah. the 70s. Most famously, they did the Dark Phoenix saga as, I believe, a three-parter yeah. and were reasonably faithful. I, I think at the end, uh, where in the comics, Jean tragically sacrifices herself, at, at, at the end of the, of the TV show, I think that you know Cyclops hugs her and love kind of forces the Phoenix out. It's, it's a bit of a cop-out, but it was, it was an interesting attempt to do in a in a very kind of you know popular level some of the great comic book stories of of X Men history and the reason why I loved it is exactly that reason which was um, uh, I was just really impressed by that series for drawing upon classic X Men stories um, but kind of taking their own spin on it their own version on it and and kind of creating you know. Um, you know, in, in Marvel, in Marvel comics language, you know, the ultimate version of the X-Men, which is like, in, in some ways, I remember thinking about that, um, that Dark Phoenix story adaptation that they did in that cartoon series and thinking like, I, I think I might actually like this storytelling approach better than the, than the, than the, X-Men, than the, than the Dream Day story in the, in, in the comics. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll end, you know, again, this is the good thing I think sometimes about TV adaptations specifically is that they can prune certain elements that maybe didn't work or they were just extraneous. I mean, like, you know, if you were to tell someone now, go and read the Dark Phoenix saga, which I tell people to do all, all the time, you know, there are elements of it that are kind of strange. Like, why are they in Australia at this point? Yes. And why, you know, which are elements of the continuity that made sense then? And there's something about the X-Men animated series version of it that feels like, you know, they, they knew exactly what elements to hit on and they were very clear about, you know, what what how do we do this for our X-Men in a way that it makes sense, which to me, you know, that, that's, that's the essence of adaptation. I mean, like, you, you know, you don't just want to see 
you know, what you read originally appear on screen. You want the sense that the creators of the show are honoring that while also kind of doing their own thing. And I, I think the X-Men show did that more often than not. I, I think it also, it tailed off a bit towards the end, yeah. possibly because of a lack of money or something right. like that. But yeah, those, those two, though, I think you're right. Those are the 90s in superhero TV shows, unless I'm forgetting. I mean, Lois and Clark, but I mean, I, again, like, well, I mean, uh, I didn't really watch Lois and Clark. And the reason why I didn't watch Lois and Clark was like, oh, like this show is an attempt to take the Lois Lane and, and, and Clark Kent relationship and turn it into sort of like a screwball romantic comedy with very light superhero stuff. That's fine. That's great. That's what you want to do. That's your cup of tea. Super. Not mine. Right. Yes. You know, just like that's not what I want to see when I want to see superhero stuff. But it's interesting because you know, as much as I feel like there is there is a, a common way of saying Superman hasn't really been done right on screen, and this is something that you know I, I feel like you heard a lot about in the years between the final Christopher Reeve movie and going into the new reboot, and then that movie happened and no one really seemed to like it, and there was another reboot. But it is funny that you have Lois and Clark, which which was a reasonably popular TV series that ran for, I think, four seasons or maybe more, which led into uh, a, TV, a TV series that gets forgotten quite a bit, which is shocking given that it maybe invented a lot of what we think of as the vocabulary of superhero TV now, but Smallville on the WB. Smallville's huge. And, like, when Smallville begins, I mean, Smallville premieres, like, what, 2000, 2001, 2002, somewhere in there. And the superhero, modern superhero pop revolution has begun. You know, right. it's we're, like, we're into Spider-Man, we're into X-Men. X-Men, Spider-Man, like the world pop culture post The Matrix, post The X-Files is now going geek, right? And like Hollywood is realizing that a generation of people that grew up on Star Wars, that grew up on Batman the movie, um, that is steeped in comic books and comic book cool – are now like in the 18 to 34 adult demo, 18 to 49 adult demo. They're now the demo to reach. And suddenly you see them kind of take a chance on like feature films or, uh, 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 um, or, or TV shows uh, in a way to uh, connect with them and with, with, with the pop culture that you know. So S- Smallville like arrives. And, but still at the beginning of that, of that show, you still see that sort of like tortured attitude about how we present superheroes on screen. And it was, they kind of take a cue a little bit from the tortured uh, approach to the X-Men that Fox and Brian Singer had, which is, can we put them in costumes? Can we put the, can we give them code names? Like, why are we doing this? You know, even then we're, we're you know, even though that they're creating now pop culture to, to, to hit this market, the people that are in charge of this stuff are still kind of wrestling with the conventions and tropes of like worrying maybe this this silly or we're, we're going to alienate some of the audience. So Smallville comes and gives us a Superboy story. Um, and yeah, the, the creative mission of that show is we're going to tell the story about how Clark Kent became Superman. So yeah, it doesn't make sense that he would have the costume yet. Fine. But you still kind of got the sense that they were wary of superhero conventions. You know, the famous rule of that was no flights, no tights. And the, the storytelling engine of that show was more X-Files-y, right? It was, you know, it was this sort of like small town coming of age kind of story about a superpowered kid. And meanwhile, there was a monster of the week or, 
you know, superpowered outsider of the week kind of story like that he was investigating. But over the course of Smallville's history, um, as the superhero and geek pop revolution is happening in the new century, like that show really starts getting like more and more comic booky, or at least like borrowing more and more elements from superhero mythology and DC comics mythology, strip mining that. And sometimes I thought ad hoc kind of ways, crazy ways. Um, and especially as the audience for that show starts shrinking a little bit and the core audience really is people that are steeped in comic book stuff. So to please them, you, 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 you kind of got to go for that, but that kind of like starts walking us up to, um, but, but Smallville sets the stage for heroes, the much maligned heroes, which, you know, no one remembers now as a good show. Which is so tragic because season one, I mean, admittedly, I've not gone back and watched it. In my memory, season one was a thrilling, you know, it felt so densely serialized as if every episode left you with four different cliffhangers. Right. I mean, you know, whatever else you want to say about, you know, the the quality of, of, of the writing and of, and, and of certain character dynamics. My memory of that show was just week to week. It was so exciting and, and, and really thrilling. And it, you did feel the build in a way that you did, that you, you didn't often feel with even really good serialized TV at, at, at that point. From, from a fan that was steeped coming to it from a point of view of steeped in comics, it, it was very, it felt clear to me that this show was sort of steeped in you know, a comic book superhero orientation. Um, sometimes explicitly, so it felt like they were like ripping off kind of like classic stories that we, we that comic book fans knew. But I was struck by something that like Kevin Smith said back in the day about Heroes. He loved at least the first season of Heroes. But he was like, Heroes is the comic book TV show that I grew up like like wishing for. It's really you know? interesting. And yeah. I, I understand what he meant by that. There was something about the first season of that show where, you know, it, it, it took its character seriously, but it also delighted in the powers and the conventions and the storytelling of comic books, but in, 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 but not in any like campy, silly way, like, like, like the Batman TV show. And that like, is a real affirmation, I think, at least in that first season that, uh, that, you know, you, you can embrace the conventions of, of 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 the comic book stuff, but but in a sort of like prestige serious prestige dr- dramatic way. Yeah, you know? d- to me, I always remember. There's the moment in episode one when Claire, the cheerleader, you first meet her on that kind of found footage video when she jumps off of something from some high place and the camera kind of runs up to her and you see that her arm is completely out of whack and she just kind of snaps it back. <laughs> and I remember feeling right then, like, that is a, 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 a Wolverine moment that I, I have seen in comic books before. And what's great about it is it sort of delights in the use of power, but it also, there's a, there's a sense of humor to it that isn't campy. You know what I mean? Right, like yeah. there's, yes. there is a, the, the, the humor I, I would describe it as joyful rather than embarrassed, which, which is what I, I think a lot of, a lot of what you're talking about. There's, you often feel an embarrassed sensibility with some earlier TV shows and heroes was just like, we're diving right in and it's one guy flies and one guy can absorb other powers and one guy can travel through time. And something about the sheer, 
the sheer muchness of that, which ultimately was too much muchness in that first season was really invigorating. I, yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. And meanwhile, as this is going on in the larger pop culture, you have the Spider-Man movies that is, that is like, you know, like making billions, billions, billions <laughs> uh, huge hits that are, that is, you know, uh, taking Spider-Man somewhat seriously. And you have the Christopher Nolan Batman movies that is taking, like, you know, Batman very seriously. <laughs> um, not quite not too g- grim and nihilistic like Frank Miller, but still kind of very, very kind of ponderous. You have this, you have Zack Snyder doing Watchmen and kind of bringing this, like, I, I think ultimately we now see prematurely this attempt to sort of be very knowing and and uh, irreverent about superhero conventions and a very kind of, like, dark and super... Like, you know, again, that question of what if we took superheroes, like, really seriously. Yes. Um, But this is all to say pop culture is walking us up to the great Berlanti moment in the sense of, like, we're now comfortable with this material. We're now comfortable with superhero conventions, with the idea of, like, you could tell drama with, with people with crazy superpowers or even with, like, people in costumes. Um, and we've seen a variety of tones and approaches tried and experimented with and taken to extremes and reaching kind of dead ends. And now here comes Greg Berlanti with, like, first uh, Arrow and then The Flash and then Supergirl and now Legends of Tomorrow. And uh, and before I kind of offer my opinion on those shows and what Greg Berlanti is doing with them, first of all, do you watch them at all? Hello, listeners. Uh, me and Jeff had this brilliant idea that we were going to do a podcast about Legends of Tomorrow that would also be about the entire history of superhero TV shows. Uh, predictably, it's running a little long, so we're going to cut off right here. Come back tomorrow for the second of this two-part episode, which will be exclusively about Greg Berlanti and Legends of Tomorrow with a few tangents along the way. Bless you.